Oh, well, good morning, ladies. It's lovely to be with you again this morning. It's lovely to, to see you all. Um, I'm so enjoying driving up here on a Saturday a month. Um, thank you very much for, for inviting me to come and, and share the, this precious little book with you um, this year. Um, no, it's my pleasure. Um, it's good to be back again. Um, this is our penultimate study, um, and it's a precious chapter um, in the song. Um, now, we didn't just come here to enjoy the lovely breakfast, did we, and the lovely ladies around our table. Um, let's just remind ourselves um, about what we're doing here. We want to be women of the word. Um, women who rightly handle um, their Bibles and apply the, the Word of God rightly to our lives. Not so. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we're going to look at this special chapter. Oh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God might be equipped for every good work. Bless your word to our hearts this morning, and our hearts to your word, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we are in the last section of the song now. Um, as we've gone... Um, how many of you um, are here for the first time? Is there anyone here for the first time? No, well, in a way, that's great. Um, so, as we, there's quite a lot of time between when we meet. So, think about the different, quickly, the different stages of love that we've seen in the song. Um, we started out with um, courting love in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And then um, we see married love in chapter 3 and the wedding. And this married love, it leads to passionate, intimate love for which the song is famous for in chapter 4. And then, slightly surprisingly, that leads to, that was followed rather by conflict and separation in chapters 5 and 6. And at the end of chapter 6, uh, last time, we saw reconciling love um, as the couple come back together. And that theme of reconciliation and maturing love, it continues into chapter 7 and our study today. And this reconciliation, it starts out with the king praising the beauty of his bride once again, and she's responding in kind. And likely as not, they're going to kiss and make up, and so it's much like normal marriage then. And let's look at the chapter in a bit more detail. As I usually do, I have three sections today, um, and they're all about the king. Firstly, the king loves the bride. The king rights the wrongs. And thirdly, the king 
reverses the curse. That's where we're going. And we're going to start with the king loves the bride, verses 1 to 5. So to remind ourselves of the context, um, I know I'm a bit like the context police. If we have a text without a context, it's a con. Okay, so let's just back up two chapters to chapter 5 and that time when the bride refused the king's advances for intimacy. Do you remember he comes calling late at night and she says something like, what time do you call this? And he leaves quietly. He doesn't make a fuss. There's no anger, no resentment, no cruel words. He's the perfect gentleman. In fact, he even leaves the bride with a present. He leaves her a gift. He pours myrrh on the door handle. And this melts her heart when she gets up to open the door. But it's too late. He's gone. He's gone down to his garden where he knows she'll eventually come and find him when she's ready. And sure enough, that's what the bride does. Eventually, she follows the king down to his garden where he's waiting for her. And he welcomes her back with open arms. And that's where we got to last time. And now as we begin chapter 7, the king speaks first. As you know, um, that's unusual in the song. The bride does um, the majority of the speaking. But here in chapter 7, the king speaks first and there are no recriminations there's no sullenness at being rejected no resentment no bitterness he just welcomes his bride back with words of love and he continues to tell her as we've seen before how significant she is to him he is so glad she's back He tells her she's significant to him by telling her that she's beautiful. We've seen that before in the song. But the difference is this time, did you notice, he starts with her feet. I guess that's probably not the way round our men would do it today, but there it is. (laughs) He begins with her feet. He says, verse 1, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Oh, personally, I think this is rather sweet. We know that Solomon, he chose a country girl. And she'd worked long hours in the hot sun in the family vineyard. Do you remember? Way back in chapter 1. Think what that would have done to her feet. So our bride has farm workers' feet. (laughs) Yet the king calls her prince's daughter. So now 
she's royalty. She has royal feet. I think that's rather lovely, don't you? And what an encouragement that is for those of us who don't have pretty feet. (laughs) If we belong to Jesus, if you are the prince's daughter here this morning, then you have, we have, I have, royal feet. Then he moves upwards. Now there's going to be a bit of giggling here. I'm ready for this. The the king, he praises her rounded thighs and says they're like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Well, I know, if only. This, (laughs) This makes us laugh, doesn't it? But we think of our own thighs, most of us, and it makes us laugh. But this girl is seriously beautiful. She's probably shamelessly naked and she's very beautiful. Now remember ladies, this book, this, this literature is poetry. So if parts of the bride's body are like jewels made by an artist, then perhaps the author wants us to think about the spiritual significance rather than her literal appearance. Think about jewels for a minute. They're precious stones. They're very expensive. They're rare. You have to be a skilled craftsman, don't you, to work with jewels. And they've been taken out of the depths of the earth you have to mine them and that's a costly exercise so as we've seen on previous occasions the king is once again speaking about the value and significance of the bride in language that reminds us of creation that's perfect It's not creation spoiled by sin. Say, where you mine and you can't find anything. This is mining and and the jewels are, we can't imagine. They're so beautiful. And he's talking about her. Like she's like that. (coughs) He moves on upwards. He describes her navel and her waist And these, according to the king, are rounded and like a mound. Well, yes, indeed. Fashions, they come and go, don't they, over the centuries? And maybe they thought a flat stomach, which is perhaps desired today, they thought maybe that made you look scrawny or underfed or something. I feel like I would have fitted right in back then. (laughs) I should have been back then. Anyway, upwards we go. And the bride's chest is likened to two fawns. See that in verse 3? Remember, this is Solomon speaking. He's the ideal king. He's a type of Christ. We're to think about Jesus when we look at Solomon the king in the song. 
And what he's not saying here is that her breasts literally look like baby gazelles. I mean, seriously, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It's erotic poetry. But what does he mean? He means that the bride is tender and beautiful and soft and lightly elegant with fine features like baby fawns. And notice we've seen this before, they're twins again. So creation here, it's, there's no infertility. This is fertile creation. The blessing of God is in this creation. New life abounds, there are twins. Nothing is dying because of sin. So we carry on upwards and we get to the bride's neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, and her hair, verse 5. Her hair is like royal tapestry. Well, in the ESV, royal tapestry is translated as purple. No, it doesn't mean the bride has purple hair. But royal tapestry in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was a lot of the colour purple in it. So when he says your hair is like royal tapestry, we're supposed to think about the tabernacle and the temple and how important that was. There was a lot of purple in the curtains. It was the royal colour, if you like. We still think of it like that today. So again, Solomon wants us to think about the bride as very significant, um, as with profound meaning. And the tabernacle, of course, and later the temple, was the place where God met with his people. Well, you can't get more significant than that, can you? And he's talking about the bride being like that. The king is, still, is held captive by its tresses. Verse 5, he's still on her hair. He's mesmerized by the beauty of the bride. Think about that. The king is pointing us to Jesus. The bride of Christ, well, if you're a Christian here this morning, that's you and that's me. He is memorized by her beauty. He's totally smitten, awestruck, And we need to ask at this point, remember the context, we need to ask at this point, how is that possible after she just rejected him? It seems as if this marriage between the King Solomon and this beautiful country girl is like a mini drama of the relationship 
first of all between Yahweh and Israel we see the same love of the king for his bride like Yahweh's love for Israel in the Old Testament because that's where this book is it's in the Old Testament that love of Yahweh for Israel how was that? it was unwavering it was steadfast constant faithful even was Israel like that? But the love of Yahweh for Israel was constant and faithful even while Yahweh, while, sorry, while Israel was inconstant and faithless. Do you see? So the king is he's using words about the bride's beauty to describe a future creation where everything is it's perfect it's it's bliss what does that make you think of heaven that's how significant the bride is it's the most significant way the king can describe her, actually. And of course, in the New Testament, looking this side of the cross like we do, think about the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. The love of Jesus for us, if you're a Christian here this morning, that is constant and unwavering and faithful while we are inconstant and faithless or am I just talking about myself Jesus is, is utterly committed to his bride and one day in the future God will bring in the new heavens and the earth and he will live in this perfect new creation with his bride. So can you see, this is not just a poem about, it's not just a poem for a pretty woman here, the king is saying. These words are, are to have deep, profound significance for us. The king's love for the bride in the song is simply pointing us to the love that Jesus has for his bride. And that love is unwavering and constant and faithful. So, just to make this practical for a minute, what can we take um, away for our marriages and our relationships here? When the king is rejected by the bride in the song... He models the love of Jesus for us. He models marriage, actually. He does not correct her. He does not sulk. He does not withdraw from her. And he does not demand a recount of all her mess-ups. He just loves her. 
unwavering, constant, and perfect, faithful. So let me ask you, are you able to love your spouse the way the Lord loves his people and the way we should love him in return? What really matters to the king here is the bride's significance as a symbol of the future glory that's going to be ours in the new creation. Because, ladies, one day God is going to make everything new and everything will be redeemed and renewed forever and we will live in the Garden of Eden the true promised land with the true king and all God's promises will come to pass. And that's why the bride in the song is so significant. And if that's not significant for you, then maybe you don't know the king yet as your heavenly bridegroom. So, the king loves the bride. And secondly, the king rights the wrongs. This is so interesting, I think. The king begins chapter 7 with the words I think every girl loves to hear from her beloved, how beautiful, he says in verse 1. And then look down to verse 6, he says it again. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with all your delights. She's beautiful and she's pleasing to him. Note that, note here, the king says his bride is beautiful the first time in verse 1. And he does that as he's introducing that little section on poetry about her significance to him. But now, he's saying it again, slightly, for a slightly different reason. It's to communicate his intention to kiss and make up here. But the words he uses are very interesting. It may be that the king intends to recall an unpleasant memory from Israel's past and put things right because look at verse 7 he says your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts like clusters of fruit well at this point many commentators on the song will talk about the literal virtues of the palm tree what amazing trees they are how they can withstand the strongest of hurricanes how a palm tree can bend right over in a gale and then afterwards it stands up it's stronger than before how if you cut it down at the base you won't kill it because it stores its nutrients in very deep roots and it will grow right back again some of you will know this if you've tried to get rid of one from your garden 
So we could talk a bit about how we might be like Christian palm trees. But I think it's worth digging a little deeper, if you pardon the pun. Because, okay, here's the biblical theology lesson for this morning. This is so interesting. The word palm tree in Hebrew sounds like the name Tamar. And as many of you will know, Tamar is not a name that conjures up thoughts of marital bliss. Those of you who know your Bibles well, Tamar is a name associated with all kinds of abuse of women, of prostitution and rape and incest. It conjures up grossly distorted and perverted pictures of marital intimacy. Those of you who don't know about the tragedies of Tamar, let me remind you very briefly of these, their very sordid instances in Israel's history. There were two Tamars that we know of. In Genesis 38, Jacob's eldest son, Judah, is bereaved of his wife and he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, who he mistakes for a prostitute. Well, she was sitting alone on the side of the road and wearing a veil, so unfortunately she looked like one. Then in 2 Samuel 13, there was another Tamar. This one was the beautiful daughter of the great King David, and she was raped by her own brother, Amnon. So add incest to rape. And these sexual horrors would be associated with the name Tamar for the original readers of the song. Because in Hebrew, the word Tamar sounds like the word for palm tree. The letters and the, the, the vowels and the consonants are the same. They're just arranged in a different order. So here in the song, verse 8, the king says he will approach the palm tree or Tamar and lay hold of its fruit. The king is a type of Christ, remember. And he says this in a context which is talking about restored intimacy in marriage. So stay with me. I think what the author wants us to understand is this. The king in the song has conducted himself throughout with honour and righteousness. He is the perfect king, the perfect bridegroom. Certainly, not in the least, when he's rejected by the bride. 
he's still like that. In the Tamar stories, the men, Judah and Amnon, behaved shamefully, wickedly, and with great unrighteousness. And I think it's like the author, Solomon, wants to overwrite this. I think he is overwriting the evil and the pain of the sexual history of men and women in earlier Bible times with the perfect righteous behaviour of the Christ-like king. You see, he's undoing the wrongs by setting them out right. He's rewriting the script for physical intimacy between a man and a woman. He's saying, it should not be like that. It can be like this. Let's not delude ourselves into thinking that God's people in ancient times were any better or any worse than God's people today. Unfortunately, every one of us today can point to things in our lives sexual or otherwise that should never have happened and just as the nation of Israel could point to Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel 13 and say the Tamar incident should never have happened we're just the same there have been many things we have said and done which should never have happened. But this side of the cross, we know that the ultimate king has come, King Jesus, and he has made right every wrong. Every wrong at the cross. Not just every wrong done to us, but every wrong we have done to others. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus was perfect obedience where Israel transgressed and Jesus was perfect obedience where we transgress today. He lived the righteous life we should live but we can't. And he was put forward by the Father as a sacrifice to rewrite every wrong. Not just the wrongs between men and women of a sexual nature, but all the wrongs, ladies. All the wrongs. So the question still remains... Are you going to deal with the parts of your story that are like Tamar's? What can we do with the dark and shameful secrets that we all keep hidden away? Those things we don't want anyone to know about, sexual or otherwise. My friends, if you will take those things to Jesus, if you will believe he's paid it all by his own blood, 
and he's conquered sin and death when God raised him from the grave you can be forgiven these things they're like corrupted files on a computer and they can all be overwritten by the dark red blood of Jesus Christ by his deep deep love for you and me if you have faith in Jesus today the father sees you as having a clean sheet as perfect and it's pleasing how beautiful you are and how pleasing no matter what your history if you have a history like Tamar's then the Song of Songs sings such a song of hope for you doesn't it in the power of his spirit we can live a new way through faith in the Son of God the way and a way is healing and forgiveness in the gospel. That's the way to do marriage and sex, ladies. Healing and forgiveness in the gospel. So chapter 7 of the song teaches us again about the bride's significance to the king and points us to a king who rights every wrong. And then finally, we can see the king reverses the curse from verse 10. So we've just looked at how the king in the song points us to the one who writes all the wrongs done to Tamar and every other woman in human history. Indeed, he suggests that his actions will write all the wrong of Israel's history along with ours. And now in this section, the bride responds to the king with words of hope for one of the oldest wrongs of all. She says, put your nose on verse 10, she says, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. Now we've heard the bride say something like this before back in chapter 2.16 I think that was maybe March (laughs) except that then she said this 2.16 my beloved is mine and I am his now she says I am my beloved's and his desire is for me see how carefully we need to read the Bible because the meaning is quite different. So the difference is the word in the word desire. Now Hebrew in Hebrew this word desire occurs just 3 times in the whole Bible. It's here. It's in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and I think it is worth 
spending a little time on this. So will you turn backwards to the beginning and Genesis 3. So you can see this for yourselves. So you see I'm not just making this up. Genesis 3.16 Are we all there? Please help your neighbour if she can't find it. Okay. Genesis In Genesis 3, we have the passage in which God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent after the fall. And the word desire appears in the curse of God on the woman. And he says there, Your desire, verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now flick forward a few pages to, well actually it's not even, it's the same page in my Bible. Genesis 4, 7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Okay. And in Genesis 4, the Lord told Cain that sin's desire was for him, but he must rule over it so that it doesn't master him. And the word desire is used in the same way in both passages. Back in Genesis 3.16, God places this curse on the relationship between Adam and Eve. Eve was made to help Adam, but instead she wants to control him. She desires to do that. And God says that desire will always be present and it will always be strong. Let me say that again. Eve was made to help Adam, but instead she wants to control him. She desires to control him. And God says that desire will always be there and it will always be strong. Moreover, God says Adam will then respond with an iron-fisted rule. And we know, don't we, ladies, that this curse of God has distorted relationships between men and women throughout all of human history. This is the curse that needs to be reversed. This curse makes us married women desire our husbands not in a godly way but in a fearful and controlling way. You know that to be true, don't you? Those of us who are married here this morning. 
and because of the same curse the man will respond with an iron-fisted rule that is harsh and autocratic. But here, back in the song, Song of Songs, chapter 7, the bride says these words in verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She gives up the desire to rule over her husband. Do you see that? She says, I am my beloved. And then she places the desire to lead where it belongs. In the heart of the husband. She says, and his desire is for me. She literally lays down her wrongful desire to control her husband when she says this. She gives herself to him. I am my beloved and his desire is for me. She renounces that sin of desire to control by giving herself to him. She's saying, I'm yours. And if Solomon in the song is the forerunner of a far greater king, then you can get what's going on here, can't you? The bride is simply giving herself to Jesus. Of course, it's the king that's brought this about because of his words. It's always the word of Jesus. He's spoken words over the bride that's caused her to give herself up to him like this. That's always the way we come to Jesus, isn't it? It's because he didn't accuse her. He doesn't condemn her after she's been unfaithful, after she's rejected him. Because he left the blessing of myrrh on the door handle. Because he conducts himself in such a way that eventually she goes to find him in the garden she wants to be restored because he's ready when she does find him in the garden because he swept her up in, her, in his chariots remember that because he speaks words of love to her that tell her she's so beautiful so precious so significant because he makes plain the intention to renew the joy of their union and she gladly gives herself. Wouldn't any bride respond this way? As I close, it seems sad to me that this precious little book of love poetry should be so often treated like some kind of technical sex manual. I really don't think it's that. It is a sexy book. It's meant to be. God has 
been kind enough to give us a word even on that. But great married sex will come, ladies, not from taking the words of the song literally, but rather from mining these treasures out of this beautiful love poem of a king to his bride. Then sex is put in its proper context and the king can speak these words of love over you and me where he says how beautiful you are and how pleasing the great love of the great King Jesus for you and me where there's so much in these words every word in this poetry has meaning where the the king he writes every wrong every wrong that's been done to us and that we've done to others and he one day that curse that came on Eve at the fall where this desire of our flesh in us that is strong and it'll always be there and we, have, we will have to fight it married ladies for the rest of our lives to our desire for our husband it's, it's wrong it's fearful, it's controlling and it's wrong and here because of the words of Jesus the words of the king the bride gives herself to him his desire is for me and if you are a daughter of the king this morning then that's the song he's singing over you his desire is for you and it is the best song ever Let's pray. Just a moment. Quiet. Oh, Father, we thank you for this precious little book in the middle of the Bible. Thank you for the picture of King Solomon as a picture of the greatest lover of all, King Jesus. Thank you that he loves us with an everlasting, perfectly faithful love. Oh Lord, help us how we need your help to respond rightly to that. Thank you that King Jesus has overwritten every wrong with his very own blood. And that one day that curse will be reversed and we will be in the new heavens and the new earth with you Lord Jesus forever how we long for that day come Lord Jesus come help us Lord in the meantime 
to love you, Jesus, like a pure bride to a bridegroom, to lay down our desire to control at your feet. And we pray all these things for your namesake. Amen.